This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast, getting entertainment to you in eight parsecs or less. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and I would rather kiss a Wookiee, but not that itchy pervert. I'm Erica Spires, and I find hammerhead to be a racist term. The term is Athorian. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm prepared to die for my new lord and savior, who was a puppet. Today, if you haven't figured out, we're talking about Star Wars. And man, there's a lot to say about Star Wars, and it's all already been said. And if you haven't watched all of the Star Wars, we are going to spoil everything. Including Mandalorian. Including the Mandalorian. Get caught up, everybody. Mark, I laughed out loud reading your talking points for today. (laughs) You have very clear feelings about this, and I'm enjoying it. So I don't know where you want to start today, if you want to start on general thoughts about these two different properties, or if you uh, want to delve right into a deep question. And I do hope, Mark, that you weren't too put off by my comment that maybe we could try to stick to these two current things. A little bit, or at least have them be our center of gravity for this discussion, because Star Wars is so flippin' huge that we may need to come back to it at some point or, or talk about other things. But having two very different things out right now is kind of exciting and I think gives us something to talk about. I thought this was whole thing would be about Rogue One. What? Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, let's do that. Change of plans, everybody. My new introduction is... Should we, like we did with sports, just go around initially and kind of state your orientation with regard to Star Wars? Are you strictly an original trilogy person? Brian, do you want to start with that? Well, yes, I follow the way of Mandalore. That's sort of what I... Poorly, however. As you can see from looking at my face, now I am ashamed. Well, this partly is due to my age, but I did see the original trilogy when it aired in the theater, though I was quite young and it was a big part of my growing up. I didn't think much of the prequel trilogy, haven't enjoyed the latest trilogy all that much, but it's fine, I guess. I will say that The Last Jedi is the only one I haven't seen more than once for whatever that's worth. Uh, I have seen them all in the theater, and I really enjoyed the Star Wars stories a lot, and I am a huge, huge fan of The Mandalorian. So that's my orientation on this. Erica? I'd say mine's kind of similar, except that I'm not as huge of a fan. Like, I haven't seen everything over and over. Grew up, you know, as a little girl, loving the Ewoks. Was later told that the Ewoks were terrible characters, but of course that's all I loved as a child. And... I didn't see the prequels in the theater. I think maybe one of them I saw in the theater. I I think I just saw them all on DVD and wasn't a huge fan. So I was really, really excited for this new set of films. I mean, I guess it's a trilogy, but then we had a couple one-offs there. And I thought some of them were really good and very promising, and I thought some of them were not. I had a pretty severe reaction to this last film. And I'm excited to talk about that. And as far as Mandalorian, I wasn't really going to watch it. And then I kept being convinced, like, well, it's good. It's only half-hour episode. See what you like. And I, I actually, I thought it was extremely charming. Enjoyed it very much. What about you, Mark? 
like Brian, I grew up on the original trilogy, and Star Wars toys were the only toys, really, when I was that age. The only thing that I wanted, the only thing that I played with. So the whole thing is sort of so close to me that I, it's hard for me to judge it. I just have a very, the way that I watch Star Wars films is probably unlike the way that I watch any other films in ways that we'll get into. I can really enjoy them even as I can see their critical flaws. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for the Star Wars fans slash haters who pick a side and really like some parts of it and don't like the other. I think it's all, I don't say equally, Childish, equally awesome, equally spectacular, but there's common elements that go through all of it so that I don't see a, a reason to become a strong proponent of one phase rather than another, though certainly I recognize that Jar Jar and Jake Lloyd's childhood acting were less than ideal. You know, talking about these different properties is a little bit like asking which books of the Bible you like more or less than the other ones. I mean, it's all just your religion and yeah, you know, some you maybe would want to read again more than others. I will say I had someone over, a member of my family hadn't seen Empire. He told me that uh, visiting over Christmas and within 90 seconds it was playing on our television because I felt that was necessary for him to see. If he had said that about Phantom Menace, I'm not so sure I would have clicked it on quite so fast. <laughs> what kind of person would you have been if, if you had done that? That's, that's more. So we should get that out of the way, maybe as the thing that complicates this, and in particular the prequel trilogy, is are these films for kids? Who are these supposed to service? And it gets more complicated as it goes on because, say, in The Mandalorian, I think maybe that it hits a sweet spot in that there's two levels that you can just enjoy. The stories, they're fairly simple, unlike The Last Jedi, which was like 10 hours of stuff crammed into a breakneck or streak to the finish, two-plus-hour movie. But with Mandalorian, like there's so much fan service also in there, as they say. In other words, like, ooh, there's somebody of that, the devil race from the cantina. That's cool, and I really enjoy that because... As somebody who loved those original movies, like to hang out in the cantina and just talk to those guys, like I would watch a whole show just on that. There was discussion there might be a, a cantina based show. And it was Clancy fucking Brown. Not only was it the devil race, holy shit. Welcome to the Star Wars verse. How many directors did The Mandalorian have? That's what I'm kind of wondering now. I'm looking on IMDb, but it's not coming up. I mean, four come to mind, but I don't know. So, I mean, I'm thinking Deborah Chow and Taika Watiti. Taika Watiti and John Favreau. And I thought Bryce Dallas Howard. Yep. So, those are just from remembering the credits. How'd I do? Anybody else? Did Dave Filoni direct any? The other executive producer behind the Clone Wars? The point is, I felt like there was a better through line in almost all of Mandalorian than we had in the films. I think that was one of the things I really liked about it. There was one episode, the, the episode where they like, where he like goes off with, this is how I remember Star Wars, which is, I remember how I felt about things, but I don't remember who people are. When the Mandalorian went off with the child and the, like the three people and they were on this special mission. The prison break? The prison. Yeah. Wasn't a huge fan of that one. Directed by Rick Famuyiwa. That just, to me, to me that, that one just felt like extra. But I liked all the other episodes quite a lot. The prison break was necessary because it gave us Bill Burr and it established that Space Boston exists. It was nice to see Bill Burr in a serious role, though, wasn't it? It was like, who is that? That looks, oh my God, that's Bill Burr. 
as serious as he gets. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about celebrities appearing in Star Wars movies. Like there's something great about them being mostly new to you. But even from the beginning, obviously we had Alec Guinness and things like that. So it's not crazy, but the amount of Saturday Night Live alums and stuff, comedians appearing in various places in the Mandalorian. I don't know. What, how do you feel about that? I'm of a couple minds about it. I have to say like when watching The Last Jedi and Laura Dern was a major character, that made me very happy. So sometimes I really like it. I also like Nick Nolte's character in The Mandalorian, but that's different, right? Because it's a voiceover. It's different than seeing somebody. So sometimes I actually kind of like it, but I think it has to, for me, fit with the theme of what they're going for. If that person, if it's supposed to be cheeky and cute, then I'm okay with it. But if we're trying to see a serious story and then somebody pops up and it just feels like, are we telling a buddy cop story or are we telling like a more serious philosophical type story? Then again, it's Star Wars, so I don't know if we're really telling a huge philosophical story anyway. How dare you? What? (laughs) I knew we were going to fight on this one, Brian. Did we need, who are the, the special guys in the latest movie that like Greg Grunberg had, oh, Dominic Monaghan. He had no purpose. It was just like a distracting celebrity cameo. It was a J.J. Abrams special, right? Here are some people I had and lost and alias. Yeah. Who are in my other things I do and they will be in my new movie because they want to be in Star Wars. Whereas I thought Carrie Russell was a pretty effective because they never actually like showed her off as Carrie Russell. Yeah, she was great. Loved her. I'm with you, Mark. I think it is really fun to get brand new people and to discover new talent. It doesn't take you out of the world as much. I feel like that with a lot of films, it would be fun to see more of that. Like when we first were introduced to Daisy Ridley as Ray, I was so taken with her. I was like, wow, what a great young actress. I'm excited to see what they do with her. I'm so glad they didn't go with like Akira Knightley or somebody that we already knew and we already had an idea of who that person was. Likewise, Oscar Isaac had come on the scene, but he wasn't super well known. So I think they did an awesome job. I know we're kind of jumping around here because we were talking about Mandalorian. Now we're kind of talking about just casting in general, but we're talking by topic. It's, it's cool. But yeah, like Gina Carano also has had some celebrity, but nothing huge. So the, I think the only thing that Correct me if I'm wrong, that was really like kind of out there for Mandalorian was Werner Herzog. In what way out there? Like, oh, that's Werner Herzog, and he sounds and looks like Werner Herzog, and this is kind of funny. You know, I felt that way about Giancarlo Esposito, and I felt that way about Amy Sedaris. I don't know. It's I, Oh, Amy Sedaris, yeah. Yeah. I didn't feel like that about Esposito. I don't know. Maybe I'm just of a different generation, but like I see him a lot, but I don't. he's not a name that I'm like, oh, that's Giancarlo Esposito. Maybe through Breaking Bad. If oh. you're a real fan of that show, he has an outsized importance in you. And I think that holds for a lot of people. It's just this incidental of who you really know can color who you think is famous or important. And I don't know how much Pedro Pascal was on your radar, if you're a Narcos fan or aren't, but he seemed like a big star to me from having watched Narcos. And I realize he kind of isn't, but in my mind, he was established through that. For me, it was Game of Thrones. So yes. And I saw him on Broadway last year. He was in King Lear last year on Broadway and was fantastic in it. And I was wondering the whole time, like, when did he have time to film this? If he was opening and (laughs) running a Broadway show, when did they actually film this? Well, it turns out he wasn't in every episode. What? Did you know? Yeah. There was uh, somebody else in the suit. Amazing. I know. Well, a stunt guy for a lot of the time. Uh, But apparently a couple episodes... 
may have just been the stunt guy. <laughs> with, oh, that kind of sucks. Yeah, sorry, I ruined everything for you. It turns out it's not real. I already <laughs> mentioned that the baby was a puppet. I hope that wasn't. How dare you? We do have Werner Herzog to thank for that, by the way. I, I didn't send this article to you that they had thought about CGIing in a baby Yoda. We're okay with baby Yoda, right? I know it's not a, all right, we're just, that's our shorthand for the child. Love, love the child. Baby Yoda. Okay, love him. Good. I don't know about his voice. Why does he have like a perfect human baby voice as opposed to like a little, like I, I, I could have used a little more Muppet creativity on his goos and gaz rather than just put a human baby voice coming out of that creature. It's a small thing. No, that's fair. My husband the whole time was like, I don't really get the baby Yoda thing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? He is actually created to be cute. If you put three fingers on any character, (laughs) it automatically makes them cute. People know that. So they did it. And they gave him these giant ears and these giant eyes and this tiny little note. Like it was made to make us fall in love. And my husband was so unfazed by it. He's like, yeah, he's cute. But I mean, he just looks like Gizmo. And I'm like, yes, and Gizmo's adorable. Babu Frick, yes or no? The little no. the little tiny guy. You know who Babu Frick looks like? He looks like Brundlefly in the movie The Fly. If you look at the, those big, wet, black eyeballs, I don't know, hard pass on Babu. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he serves a purpose, but stop trying to make that guy happen. The little dog robot? I think he's pretty darn cute. It's that hooded eye. It's just that let's out cute the cutes. We have R2 is not cute enough. We need a younger BB-8. Oh, BB-8 is not cute enough. We need an even littler, cuter robot who's been abused that we can feel sorry for. Uh, I don't know about this whole chain. Not to just dwell on internet memes, but someone posted something from Raising Arizona shortly after they've kidnapped the little Arizona child and the Holly Hunter character is holding it, and they've just kidnapped it. And she starts breaking down crying, saying, I love him so much. That's how I felt about Baby Yoda. Like this instant connection to this little puppet. Like, I will die for this little child. One of the most unique things, I guess it's been imitated since, about since we're talking about casting, is the style of the aliens. And how, what it really should be, if you think that we live in an infinite universe and there, there could be all types of life, is it should not be restricted as in early Star Trek to a guy with a thing on his head, (laughs) right? We've got some of that in Star Wars, but we all have, I don't know, I was kind of thrown in Rise of Skywalker, like right near the beginning, and they're showing people working on the Falcon, and like there's this, one of the main characters just walks right by this big, weird thing. I'm like, wait, what the hell is that? He's out of the never-ending story, right? This big (laughs) slug creature. But, you know, Mark, some science fiction requires a little bit of panspermia or something to relate the species to each other so they can even relate, right? If we don't have arms and legs and eyeballs, we're not even going to be able to have communication or connection or whatever. So maybe that's just the world we're living in, that all these creatures are somehow related to one another. One thing I want to bring up about creatures that maybe I just don't have enough knowledge of the Star Wars universe, but I think something that the other one, Star Trek, does very well is they have these races of different types of beings, right? And one race is maybe known for one thing and one race is kind of known for another. And, and, and you know, there's some intertwining of that. I feel like like Star Wars, it's kind of all over the place. Like, I think if they did more with their world building that made me feel like, oh, these guys are really good engineers, you know, there were more Babu Frick types, right? He was the engineer, right? 
if we had more people like that and we could be like, oh, this is kind of like, then we would immediately, our brains would relate to, oh, I kind of understand what this is, even if it's a new character for me. But they just keep throwing in cute and we have to get to know new things all the time. And so I feel like they're just trying to make something cute to make us like it rather than actually building a world around it. I think what you're describing always feels like lazy shorthand to me. And in Star Trek, it was lazy shorthand with races, right? The Klingons are warlike and the Vulcans are intellectual. And in Star Wars, it's this lazy shorthand with world building. And so there's an ice planet and a desert planet and a swamp planet. Whereas just with our one stupid race and our one stupid world, we have this huge amount of variety in our ecospheres and we have this huge amount of variety in how people are. So, you know, we have our warlike people and our intellectual people and our jocks and our nerds and our spazzes. And why shouldn't other places be as diverse as the human races? I think that's another way to do it then. But we know our world. So we have a familiarity that people can do all of these things. I think that when they are separate worlds, like literally separate worlds, and some people can't even travel from one to another, it makes sense that they would be a little more like each other. Maybe that's just backward thinking on my part, but I think maybe for shorthand of storytelling, I want to feel like I kind of understand what's going on in these different worlds without just being like, oh, that character's from this planet. There's nothing like emotionally tying me to that character in that planet. That character just happens to live on that planet, but I don't feel like it has anything to do with it. And that's not across the board, but I feel like that happens in general. I like the rogues gallery sort of approach and actually wish that the amount of variety would even continue. That I think one of the mistakes in the extended universe has been to try to relate everything directly back to the movies. And like, so we have to see more of the particular races that were in the cantina as opposed to creating new things. And so I think when the movies, you know, have a new, now we're going to Canto Bite. We're going to have basically a new cantina scene in every single movie, perhaps multiple <laughs> cantina scenes of different groups of aliens. And we're always going to introduce new stuff. And I guess my only question is just, should there be limits that I think Lucas in, introducing CGI was saying, no, there are no limits. Anything you can imagine. It, it doesn't have to just be, as in the original cantina scene, the costumes that we happen to have lying around in the universe, in the studio. Did you know about that? Like, that's why there's a devil costume. That's why there's a wolfman that then cut out of the special edition because, come on. Or like a little puppet snake or something <laughs> I like that, Mark. I do. I know I sound like I'm, I'm contradicting myself. I, I somehow, though, have an issue with maybe I want more world building in new properties so that I can then feel an emotional tie to some of these characters more deeply than just being introduced to them, feeling like they're just a, a fan service of, here, buy this new toy that's really cute. Instead, learning more about that particular being, where they're from, what the others are like, what the family is like, rather than it's just like, isn't this a cool creation? I feel like there's just not a lot of thought that goes into it. There's a lot of design thought maybe, but not, not a lot of like world building thought. The Mandalorian sure seems to be doing that for us. And it's something you can do when you have that much time. But I feel like the Ugnaughts went to just being kind of this funny looking race in Empire to just through one character getting to know a little bit about the way they think, or at least the way that one of them views the world. And certainly the Mandalorians have always been stylistically in front of us, but we've never known that much about them. And now we know so much. They clearly went pretty deep into that. Really sort of get a sense that when they decided to make the Mandalorian, they almost said, well, what if we just had to make 
a TV show having only seen the first three movies, having only seen the original trilogy. This idea that they could expand the world that we originally had rather than just going off in any direction because it was still so fertile and there was so much we didn't know still about the races in the original trilogy. So why go off in new directions when we had existing directions that were so rich to expand on? And as someone who grew up with it, this is, I feel like I'm getting to look under the hood of, of something I really love rather than some new thing, which maybe I would and maybe I wouldn't. I think Lucas and his supporting artists in doing the prequel trilogy also shared that fascination, which is why, so, you know, they were so excited about, we've heard about pod racing in the original Star Wars movie. Let's create this whole thing. And then this is actually when I introduced my kids to Star Wars, we would just watch scenes. They weren't going to sit through a whole movie when they're really young. So the pod racing scene, and in particular on the DVD, there's a whole, like half the pod racing scene was removed. Full effects. Because it's already interminable in the movie, like as a piece of cinema, there's no way in any of the sequel trilogies that something like that would show up in it. But these movie makers were just so excited about this world they built. And to address your point, Erica, about creating the races, like there's even, I think, in the deleted scene. So they go and they introduce all the pod racers individually, which could be like, yes, we're going to make action figures for each of these. And some of them are little CGI creatures and some of them are somebody in a mask. And, and one of them, they introduce his family, <laughs> not only the one individual creature, but like some little cute <laughs> versions of it. And then when that guy crashes and dies, then they show his family crying. <laughs> I think we're just circling around the fact, not really a hot take at this point, that Lucas was a total hack and not a very good storyteller. And Star Wars succeeded despite him in some ways. Maybe the limited budget and better acting than writing made Star Wars happen. And two other people directed the next two movies, and that's why they were so good. And then he made three turns in a row with the prequel trilogies because he had too much money and too much control. And I don't know, by the time the new trilogy came along, the whole thing just was out of control. Nothing against J.J. Abrams, but I, I'm not sure he was really the right person for the job. And Ryan Johnson, but another discussion altogether. Totally. Two things I liked about The Mandalorian in regards to nuance and storytelling was Kuil, was that right? Talks about the Jawas when Mando's saying like, oh, they're stripping my ship, and he clearly feels one way about the Jawas, and Kuil's like, no, this is what they do. This is how they survive. They're scrappers, you know? And it was nice to see somebody be like, yeah, I, I coexist with these people. I understand what they do. They're not trying to just take from you. This is part of how they survive to make him calm down a little bit and not just want to kill them right out. And then the moment near the end where Mando is talking about the child and finds out that it's from this race that the Mandalorians were at war with, and he's like, well, what should I do with this child? And she's like, it's your ward now. You know, that we may have had a, a fight with the race, but not with this child. This child is yours. I thought those moments were particularly beautiful. So is this circling around to that question that you raised of, is there sort of a philosophical story or a point to these films, these stories? Which, yeah, I think they're trying to say something fundamental about war and family and things. It's just... Does it seem like these really cause deep reflection or that this is sort of too syrupy, too childish a format to really allow for, you know, a highly literary Oscar winning thought provoking movie? 
Well, Mark, early on, you raised the question of who are these movies for? Are they for kids or adults? They are not for anything. They are for making money for the people who make them. That's why things get made for mass media. And if they can also make something that moves us and makes us think or makes us connect, like that's gravy and that's great. And they did it. So I'm really, really happy about that. I think they succeeded in creating art from my perspective. I think, Eric, of what you were talking about with that scene, the second one in particular, really challenging Mando's conception all along about having this allegiance to a creed, to his fellow Mandalorians, but now he has this other allegiance. He's in this clan of two, this Mudhorn clan with the little baby. He's kind of challenged in a new way that he hasn't been. And maybe we'll make us think about our own allegiances. In these difficult times we live, I'm thinking that this baby Yoda is going to be the thing that brings us all together as a people. So, <sighs> Republicans and Democrats. I, cats and dogs living together. I think this is the thing. I do think they are more or less made for children or for people to relive their nostalgia as children. But I do think that some of the best stories, like the stories that shape us as humans, do come from children's stories. So there's nothing wrong with that. And I hope that we would aspire to be is to teach us something. And I think that's why I get frustrated when the stories aren't always told so well, because they have such an opportunity. They have so many years to put these things together. Maybe they have too many cooks. This is kind of how I felt with the last movie in particular. I was like, man, they must have just like written this by committee because it was all over the place for me. But I think we can definitely learn sometimes more from things if they are written for children. It's simple. I strongly challenge your claim, Brian, that the primary motivation of most of the people directly involved in the creation of these films is making money. I think that Lucas was, you know, he was making art films and he wanted to challenge this stuff that excited him, these Flash Gordon serials and these samurai movies that excited him as a child. And as far as why the sequels were made, I'm not completely sure about Empire and Return of the Jedi, but Abrams and Ryan Johnson and uh, Favreau are just, you know, so for the same reason, like that this is what excited them as kids, so pleased to be playing in this sandbox that obviously there's lots of financial considerations going into these, especially when they're so expensive to make. Yeah, and then particularly with Lucas doing the prequels, like, he didn't have to do that. He wasn't short on money. Like, it really was a matter of popular demand and him wanting, just enjoying doing this. Just the thing that he enjoys about this is the art direction. And so when you say he's a hack, like, he's always been a hack storyteller, but his art direction, and he doesn't even, you know, come up with most of the ideas. He's just choosing among them. But, you know, that group of artists together with the John Williams score, which Lucas says is like the most important thing. Like that is what Star Wars is, according to him. Like that's a pretty unstoppable creation. So Mark, people didn't hate Solo. In fact, if you look at people's rankings of movies, it's, it's pretty high up there. It did poorly, and then they canceled a bunch of movies that they were going to make. So why is it not about making money, at least from the decision-maker standpoint, right? It's clearly something that someone is either saying yes or no to based on financial decisions. I'm not impugning the, the filmmakers or the showrunners or anybody involved in it, but like why things get made or all those sticky fingers that Erica is talking about of every executive producer who's on the show who has to like put their, boy, too many metaphors, have to put their stink on it by changing something. And that's partly why the movies become 
so twisted because, oh, it's passing my desk. I got to change it a little bit. Or why do I have this job? I just think there's a lot of decision makers who don't have the artistic vision in mind. They're just, they have the money in mind. Fight, fight, fight. Oh, we're doing fight, it for fighting. Fight, no, fight, we have fought and I have won. What's your next point, Mark? Oh, Oath. come on, Mark. Come on, Mark. What do you got? What do you got? I'm wanting to connect this to the extended universe somehow. Have either of you read a Star Wars novel of any sort? No. I read part of the first Thrawn book. Or the graphic novels. Many, yeah. Yeah. Plenty of them. Those are sort of less, they're much lower stakes because not only, like, even at the time, there's somebody overseeing, like, don't kill off Chewbacca. (laughs) Although they eventually did kill off Chewbacca in the books. (laughs) Good example, Mark. Try again. But, you know, there were things that they could and couldn't do, but for the most part, it was kind of like The Mandalorian is on a much broader scale. You know, even though it's a lower budget than a movie, it's still like a way higher budget than any other TV show, including Game of Thrones. But writing a novel, writing a comic book, on the one hand, it's like hack work in a certain way. And you could tell, I don't know, you'd have to talk with the various people who who wrote those things in terms of like, we could make a little money if we just churn these things out. So like somebody turned on the faucet and Lucas was smart enough in this case to just say, yes, I will get more money coming to me. I will never read these things myself. They will never necessarily have any influence on future movies, but I'm going to let this thing happen. But it gave all those other people, you know, some of whom were pretty darn good writers, a chance to play in that sandbox and fix the problems. I guess this is a, this is another sort of question about world building. And you know, so much effort has gone into retconning, papering over, fixing plot holes in the original movies through these extended universe things. You know, people are asking right now, like, what? How did Palpatine survive? Like, I'm sure there will be a book about that soon. I'm not sure if this completely addresses the money versus love of the thing, because really the same ambiguity is present in this endeavor as well, but at least just the amount of extra energy people want to put into filling in the gaps and expanding the universe. And, you know, this is certainly inspiring people in a way that I'm trying to think of something that is just a prototypical comic books, money churning. I mean, it's it's yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's awesome because I think that comic books do exactly the same thing. No, I think maybe if you don't like comic books, you feel like that's just a, we can generate more money from that. I would think more soap operas. Like, why do these soap operas keep going after this many years? Because it's like, it's a cheap way to create entertainment with an established audience. But on the other hand, I'm sure the people that actually write those things, they probably love it and think it's just as awesome as the Star Wars Extended Universe. So I don't know. I don't see how it's really different from comic books. Maybe except that there's a committee that decides what becomes actually something that, you know, Marvel wants to produce versus somebody just writing a fanfic. But yeah, it's a world people love, they're drawn to. I think it's great to play in the sandbox and expand that world. Maybe out of that, something rises and there's a really great writer and somebody's like, yep, I want to produce that. That's a great writer. I love what they're doing with Star Wars. Let's make that a movie. And I think that would really serve it. I think one of the things that Marvel does so incredibly well with their films, they took so long to establish each of those characters in their own films in their own trilogies oftentimes, most of the time, that by the time we got to their final film together, not even their final, but by the time we got to Endgame, we felt so deeply because they took time and it didn't matter that they had different writers and different directors and completely different feels for different films because they took the time to still establish and develop each of those characters. And not even all of the films were great, but they built. 
Star Wars was doing that in nine, basically in nine films, plus a few solo movies. Rogue One, I still think is great. I would have loved more things like that. And then we eventually get a payoff. I'm sure that I haven't read anything about this, but I can imagine, can't imagine that we are done with the films. You know, this feels like the end, but it's not. Yeah, I feel like The Mandalorian in some ways is like the Ant-Man movie, right? It's Yeah. The the stakes are lower. It's a story we want to hear about. It's, you know, whenever a new Marvel movie came out, it's not like people just lost their minds and does this new Marvel movie ruin everything? That's it. They didn't put all that pressure on it. But that nine movie series of Star Wars somehow and almost like it couldn't succeed at a certain point. It was just expectations were too high and too different. And yeah, I want this to be new and different, but not too new and too different. And I want new characters, but I don't really want new characters. And I want this to be everything. And the person next to me has a completely different set of unreasonable expectations. And did anyone really go, and not to pick on Ant-Man, and I'm, I'm not, because it was a perfectly fine, entertaining movie, but it also was, I don't think it was the best, and no. certainly not the worst. And in some ways, that's what I think Rogue One and, and Solo did well. They were, Solo was saddled, I think, with the Han Solo mythology and doing a little too much, whereas at least... Rogue One, for the most part, gave us new characters with a, a couple of familiar faces, but they weren't the stars of the of the show. Yeah, those two movies are just so different that, mm-hmm. I mean, so at least was trying. I, I think largely succeeded in being a fun little romp, you know, with a lot of snappy dialogue and cute little characters. And like, it could have been trimmed down a little bit or whatever to make it a more pleasing in the moment experience. But I, for the most part, really liked it. And Rogue One at the time, even though I think objectively it's a better movie, and I think that's the critical consensus, it, it was also panned for being just kind of joyless in a way, right? Except for the Alan Tudyk Imperial droid, uh, who is the sidekick, like there is almost no humor in it. And the characters were introduced so fast, it was very hard to, to put a lot of stake in the samurai sort of character and his friend that are tagging along with them and just if they want to keep bringing back exactly the same characters in almost every film, they got to figure out a way. Somebody smarter than me has to figure out a way to do it, I think, that is actually successful. Otherwise, I think it seems as though Mandalorian has done something that we all needed. Maybe we didn't all need, but many of us really, really wanted. You got to just, I think you sometimes you just have to step away, build the other parts of the world come back, don't put all your eggs in one basket because you can't accomplish everything in one two-plus-hour movie. We actually haven't really talked a ton about this movie, Rise of Skywalker, and how we felt about it. But I'm just going to say, because I, I feel like I have to say this, because I like most things. I think we can agree so far that I will be like cool with most things. I did not like this movie. I enjoyed it sometimes, but I, I rolled my eyes so many times during this, and I think... I can give you some specifics about it, but generally speaking, I felt like they were trying to do fan service in one way with a movie, and then another way with the movie, they were developing the story that I felt like they should have committed to, which was all the new portion of the story, and they were trying to stick it in one thing, and then like it didn't feel like there were any real stakes. Every time they kept going to a new place, they knew they were being pursued. And then they would get out. And then they would go to a new place. And they were still being pursued. And there was no just moment to breathe. 
and develop the story. It was just bam, 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 bam. And here's a little funny thing. And here's like something we want you to think is serious. And now there's another funny thing, a fan service thing. So I don't know how you guys felt. Yeah, you saw twice, Brian. This is where I find out if my family listens to this podcast. Because I went to see the movie with them when we were all together. But I actually secretly saw it a few days earlier because (gasps) I just wanted to be on the internet. So I snuck off. So I did see it twice, though I'm not sure I would have gone to see it twice had it just not been for circumstances. It is a sprawling mess. It is effective in places. I feel like in the last line of the movie, even though I knew it was coming, I kind of choked up and got really pleased with Ray's resolution in the last word of the movie. But there was also a lot of, it almost felt like watching the movie crawl back in the 80s of we got to go get a thing so we go to a place and now we got to get a new thing so we go to a new place and it was especially having seen empire again just within the span of a day like this is not how they used to make these movies this is a different kind of thing and they weren't afraid of having quiet moments and intimate moments and what are we doing here the use of force healing in the same weekend in both the mandalorian and in rise of skywalker it was done so much better in Mandalorian. And then the other big thing that bothered me was they seemed to spend a lot of time walking back episode eight. And I didn't love all the decisions in episode eight of Ray is the daughter of nobodies. Oh, we don't like that now. So, oh yeah, they chose to be nobodies, but it's actually the emperor's son. <laughs> and Luke threw away his lightsaber. Well, yeah, he has come to say, oh, you must treat your, a Jedi should treat his weapon or her weapon with more respect. Like, really? I mean, should we just like drag out Ryan Johnson and beat him? We can just do that. It will be faster than making me watch all these scenes. Come on. I think the reason this movie was good was Adam Driver, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, and Oscar Isaac. I think the reason the movie was bad was so <laughs> most of the other things. I think the actors, the new actors were so good and they felt like a true unit and they were in the same movie. And then a lot of the other actors were in a different movie. So the stock footage or the trimmings of Carrie Fisher seemed like they were from a different movie? I was so uncomfortable with that the whole time. They say that they were just using it from other like cut scenes and stuff, but it almost seemed like there was like a darkness around the picture. Like they had superimposed certain things and it felt really awkward and I can't help it. I just kept thinking, would Carrie Fisher have wanted this to go on? That's not the what she would have given if she was in that film, Right. She wouldn't have. And so would she have signed off on being like, yeah, just throw my stuff together and make it into a composite? She did say at one point, I mean, she noted that episode seven seemed to be a Han movie and episode eight was a Luke movie and she was fully expecting episode nine to be a Leia movie. So so maybe? Maybe, maybe. Who knows? She, she let herself be CGI'd into Rogue One while she was still alive. That's true. I do wish she would have just died, though, in uh, The Last Jedi. That would have been way cooler, I think. Considering the circumstances, if she were still alive, like all about it being a Leia movie for the third one, why does it need to be a Han movie and a Luke movie and a Leia movie? Like, it doesn't need to be that. That's not what it is anymore. Well, and gratuitously a Lando movie. Yeah. Ugh. Like, he was just hanging out on that planet? What? (laughs) That was really weird. Awkward. Well, in episode eight, when... They put out the call for people to come fight, and no one came. It's because they didn't have Lando. Because he's, so, he's the most charming man in the galaxy. 
when he went for calling for ships, literally every ship showed up. That was an impressive scene on the big screen. I will say that. I don't feel qualified yet to give my final opinion on this recent movie because I've only seen it once. And like I was saying at the beginning that... Come on, Mark, choose a side. I only seen it once. The first time I see any Star Wars movie, it's just with eyes agape looking at all the stuff. Because I think that, again, is the primary purpose of these movies, is looking at all the stuff, taking in the music while you're looking at all the stuff. And then if it has on top of that some clever jokes, I think the script was pretty well written as, as far as the you know moment-to-moment, as, as awkward as a couple of the things like Lando showing up the first time. And I wasn't sure even the whole like training thing at the beginning, like it seemed a little strange. And then the emotional heart of the thing, like I really liked the last portion. I liked how it, you know, Lucas created this great, often derided thing about his movies being like a mu- musical motifs that the, the different theme, you know, it's not rehashing, it's rhyming. So the Force Awakens rhymes with this. And the, and so like the fact that his Ben Solo's last, you know, winking out of existence match so well visually with some Anakin stuff that I remembered very distinctly from episode three. Like that was a kind of thing that resonated for me. And so I felt emotionally it worked really well for me. So overall, I think I felt like it was a great experience, you know, despite the fact that, yeah, I think again, what made the original Star Wars movie so strong is that not a lot of things happened <laughs> that you do get some time. Like it takes time to get from place to place on a ship as opposed to now. It seems like vroom, vroom. We're at a different place. We're at a different place. And you don't establish what any of these worlds are. And you just, you're at a new location. It took no time to get there because we just have to fit all this plot in before we get to the end. And some of the plots seemed a little silly, like, C-3PO has to, they can't just tweak him there. They have to zoom around and find a different guy. Like, you know, these. (laughs) You guys, why didn't they have a thumb drive? (laughs) Like something, just have an external hard drive, put it on there, reset, put him in. This was a long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away? (laughs) Maybe. I I will say one thing that I loved about 8, and I didn't like much about it, but I loved in 8 the distance connection that Kylo Ren and Rey had. Yes. And they continue to do it very well in Episode 9. I thought the fighting, and especially one (gasps) guy, he ripped a bag of beans and they spilled. That was so cool. He found where she was when Vader's mask dropped. I thought that was... I know we spoiled everything, but now we've really spoiled everything. I thought that was maybe my favorite part of of that show was when they were having those lightsaber fights at a at a distance and those connections at a distance. My favorite moment was when they like did that and didn't she give him a lightsaber? That's what was happening. Yes, she gave him the lightsaber in, in, in that diehard moment when he reaches behind and pulls up. Yes, that was so cool. There were definitely moments that I loved, but then moments that I was just like, like the next moment I would roll my eyes and it pissed me off. Speaking of things going so fast, Mark, one thing I have to mention is um, when I told my husband we were doing this, he's like, make sure you tell them TIE fighters can't warp. He actually liked the movie okay, but he hated that moment. He's like, that's the whole point. TIE fighters aren't supposed to do that. I had a discussion about this. (laughs) With someone, and well, maybe they've improved by then. Uh, maybe the reference to that in the original film, like, oh, they're 
we must be near something like the Death Star because there are TIE fighters out here and they wouldn't be out on their own. Maybe it's not that they can't warp, it's just that they have no reason to warp. You wouldn't go cr- <laughs> Anyway. Do their wings fold down the way they do in Mandalorian Episode 8 ever? I mean, that was pretty cool, but I don't think we've ever seen that. I felt like the TIE fighter design in Mandalorian was more modeled on the toys than on the previous <laughs> that like that Favreau owned the TIE fighter toy. I really expected when Mando flies up to take on the TIE fighter that he was going to click the button that would make the wing fall off. <laughs> <laughs> and that's almost what happened. What is great about this for me is the fact that people have those kinds of debates, right? That this inspires that kind of fervor so that you are talking about how TIE fighters work. And that same goes in terms of the, the philosophy, you know, that there are these sort of debates about, it's not that like there's anything really original being presented. It could be an introduction to philosophy in the same way any number of popular culture things could be. It's not like there's a lot written into it, but this whole, what is the force? Does it actually destroy it to have midichlorians? What is its connection to genetics? Is this a show that is very purposefully aristocratic and the only thing that matters are these couple of bloodlines of families? Or is there an underlyingly, as I think Ryan Johnson was trying to push forward, democratic, you know, the force is a, an energy and it's accessible anywhere. It's, I'm less interested in resolving those things than that, like, that's part of the fun. That's a, part of why it inspires such additional effort and discussion and imaginative construction is because it has those intellectual elements as well as you know visual design elements and other things. I agree, Mark, that answering these questions is a little less interesting than maybe asking them and seeing what they can do with it. As I, I shared with you guys what was upcoming on terms of Star Wars television uh, on Disney Plus. And one of them is the untitled Cassian Andor series. He was the assassin in Rogue One and the untitled Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which rumored that uh, Ewan McGregor will be in that. I've got to say I'm way more interested in learning about Cassian Andor. I don't know much about him. I don't know where that story is going to go. I feel like I know even more than I want to about Obi-Wan at this point. And... All right, I guess it'll be set at a different time period than we've seen, but it seems like a more interesting world is in front of me with the first of those two than the second. But we'll see what they bring us. I had the reverse (laughs) excitement levels between those two and was more excited about the cancel thing about the cantina, as I said. (laughs) There's a series of short stories that the Tales from the Cantina, and they had a different one on Tales from the Bounty Hunters, and what was Bosk doing during... (laughs) During the rest of the stuff, who is that as a character? You know, so I'm almost more interested in those little behind the scenes stuff to the regular movies than what these newly created characters that didn't make much of an impression on me the first time, you know, what their backstory is. I think that most exciting things right now in media are for me happening on television. So I'm excited to see more what Disney Plus does. And I also think that Disney Plus needs to release something soon because. I have to say I'm a little disappointed in how many things they have on their list that are unavailable. And I agree with you, Mark. I think clearly Star Wars has done something incredible. We can all agree on that. We all talk about it. We all go to see the films, whether or not we're huge fans or not. It's just fun to be a part of the conversation. So I'm not upset that I saw it on the opening night. 
it's sometimes even kind of fun to be able to roll your eyes at something and be like, I know just enough about this to know that it wasn't my cup of tea, but still to be able to enjoy a lot of moments in it. And I will hardly ever blame the actors. I think that the actors did quite a good job, except God love him, Mark Hamill. I just don't know what movie he was in this time. All right, thanks. We're going to continue this for the supporters only. You can get that at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. May the force be somewhere in your vicinity. And also with you. Everyone. (laughs) Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.